All right, we are going to be in Corinthians. Before we get into Corinthians, I'm going to do my last five jokes, okay? I've, I've, I've saved the best ones. Not for here, but for somewhere else. No, no. Um, I, I have a fear. I have a fear of over-engineered buildings. It's called a complex, complex, complex. Um, I used to be addicted to the hokey pokey, but I turned myself around. It's not too bad. Um, uh, I was diagnosed as colorblind yesterday. It came completely out of the purple. Um, that took a second. Um, ceilings aren't my favorite part of the house, but they're definitely up there. Um, we had someone break in recently and steal all of my antidepressants. I hope they're happy. On that note, it wasn't too bad. I mean, let's be honest, the only way was up from where we started this morning. All right, we are going to be in Corinthians. I want you to have your Bible open. If you are a underlining, highlighting person, if you're a note-taking person, um, please get stuff ready because we are talking about women's fashion. Father's Day 2019, head coverings. Head coverings is where we're going to end up. Let's recap a little bit from where we are up to. We are in the city of Corinth. Corinth is a city that has two ports. It is on an isthmus, um, uh, a very, very narrow strip of land that was heavily uh, defend, well, it was heavily prized because it was a trade center. Rather than going the whole way around the Peloponnese, which is that area at the bottom, uh, people could actually just sail right through. So you're talking about a cultural melting pot. Um, Corinth had been fought over and won and lost so many times. Um, it had been a, a really um, rich city that had then been absolutely leveled and then built again and then leveled and then built again, happened again and again and again. So by the time Paul gets there, Corinth is enjoying the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This was one of the things that the Roman Empire used kind of as propaganda is to go, when we come in and we take over your country, you are going to experience peace and you are going to experience prosperity and you're going to experience this cultural elevation that's just going to be swimming with, uh, with, with really wonderful, enjoyable things. The peace of Rome, they would add their infrastructure to it, all that sort of stuff. So when Paul comes, Paul comes as a Jew to a very diverse Greco-Roman city. So the Greeks had filled it with their culture, then the Romans had adopted a bunch of stuff and brought in a whole bunch of other things. And so Corinth is kind of like, think think like Melbourne, okay? That kind of thing. If something is new, then it's, it's fascinating and it's exciting and, and we want it. We want the newest fabrics or we want the newest uh, furniture or we want the newest jewelry. We, we want whatever is fashionable, whatever is at the cutting edge. But at the same time, we find out that there are things 
uh, and every culture does this, where at some point people go, you know what, let's reach back into our history and get something really meaningful and bring it forward to the present and continue celebrating that as a meaningful thing. Imagine if Kerrang decided that we were going to have um, a yearly cultural event based around Carly McDonald. Who here knows who I'm talking about? Yeah, we have a clock in the middle of town. We have we have some plaques uh, uh, up at the high school as well as around the back of the levee. So that kind of thing is to go, here is something really meaningful which happened, but what would it look like if we bring it forward and celebrate it? And what had been going on in Corinth was the worship, um, particularly around um, Apollo, um, was the main one, but Aphrodite was the goddess. And so what they would do is they were, were building temples and then rebuilding temples. And then they went, wait a second, there's this other older story in the same district about this woman whose son was accidentally killed by one of the gods. So she turns into um, a spring of water so that she can cry eternally. And that there's this that water flows through particular caves and we divert it. So a whole lot of the architectural symbolism of Corinth was shaped around the worship of, of these deities. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but Paul has just finished this conversation at the end of chapter 10, and this sets up where he's going in chapter 11. And th- there's one really, really simple point I want to make this morning, is that everything that Paul talks about is responding to the context of Corinth. And what it means is this, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write. When Paul writes to Corinth, he writes to Corinth. It is called authorial intent, the intent of the author. And it means that when his first readers would have picked up the book of Corinthians, well, the letter from Paul to them, it it actually would have made perfect sense. So some of these things which are confusing for us would have been completely sensible to them So in order for us to make sense of it, we need to put ourselves in their shoes culturally. But it also means then that that if there is something specific going on in their culture, we can't just cut and paste it to the other side of the world 2,000 years later. It means we actually have to to put some work in. We have to put some thought in. We're going to read through it, then we're going to unpack because there's there's a fair bit in here. Um, But it's going to be good. It's going to be exciting and it's going to be fun. And I'm out of jokes. Corinthians 10, verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give a participation, a koinonia, a strategic partnership in the blood of Christ and is not the bread that we break, a koinonia in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all mateka, we all share or or have, have a go at one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat sacrifices participate in the altar, Mateko. Do I mean then that food sacrifice to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be in koinonia, in strategic partnership with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a Mateko, a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. 
No one should seek their own good but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. And we talked about the way, there we go, Mateco lends itself towards koinonia, that participating in something lends itself towards partnership. We talked a little bit about that we, we need to do some homework with regard to our own conscience going, where do I engage with this? How much of something am I prepared to be involved with knowing that the participation leads to partnership? And I'm not going to preach uh, last week's sermon again. These were some of our conclusions. All because it's legal doesn't mean it's beneficial or constructive. And we need to be eating and drinking and doing all things with the salvation and therefore the conscience of others in mind. This is where Paul lands. He goes on. What we have is chapter 11. I praise you. Here is something they're doing really well, so it seems. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor to the churches of God. We can probably just finish there. Um, yeah, why would this be contentious at all? Women's fashion. Let's jump right in. In the ancient Roman world, the clothing that you wore said something to everyone you walked past about your social status. So um, women would have uh, a range of different things that they would wear. They would have a garment which was called uh, 
a tunica, which was just kind of, it was the men's, the men would have a toga, the women would have uh, an undergarment, which was called a tunica, like a slip, and then they would have something over the top of that, which was called a stola. And a stola is something that all women would wear, um, and it's, it's the thing that would be like clasped up here. It would be held with kind of brooches and stuff. And single women would wear a stola, but a person who was married or a person who was widowed would wear this extra thing over the top, this shawl, which would be usually a very, very nice material, and it was called a pallor. And a pallor was something which denoted to everyone she walked past down the street, this is a married woman. She is not to be approached. She belongs to someone. She is not to be touched. She is not to be heckled. And so in the ancient Roman world where women were had less rights than men, where the testimony of a woman was either inadmissible in court or you needed six or seven women's testimonies to counteract one men's testimony in a court of law, what the pallor did was it said that this woman is attached to something that gave her safety. This is actually something which, which lifts her up in status. So some of the things that we know about this is um, that if a woman was accused of adultery and was convicted of adultery under Roman law, one of the punishments uh, was that she may have had her head shaved. She would also not be allowed to wear a pallor and she would not even be allowed to wear a stola. She would have to wear a toga, a uh, a male outer garment, and that was a sign to everyone else that she had been um, accused and convicted of adultery, or it was a sign that she was actually um, a prostitute because she had to wear that clothing. So when a married woman would leave her house, she would have her pallor over her shoulders and she would pull it up and over her head because it was not proper in Roman culture for a married woman to have her head unveiled when she went out in public. And there are some cultures in the world, a lot of other cultures in the world, where this is still the case, where married women may have on beautiful, amazing clothing and they will cover it when they go out in public. Um, I saw a fascinating little snippet of a documentary where someone was in the United Arab Emirates and they were going for a walk through this amazing, very Western kind of shopping centre that was selling all these gorgeous, amazing outfits. And, and the bloke who was there, who was being led around by, um, by a Western woman who had moved there, um, he said, who buys this clothing? And, and she said, all the local women buy this clothing. He says, but they don't wear it. And she says, yes, they do, but they don't wear it for men. When they're out in public, all men see is, is the black garment that's over the top. But when they go into a woman's house, that outer garment comes off and they are in, oh man, it's competitive. They have on their finest fabrics. They have on their most beautiful jewelry. Um, and we see some of these kind of echoes even in modern day cultures. So only a matron or a married or a widowed woman was allowed to wear the pallor, um, over the top of their stola. And the pallor would be drawn over the head when out of doors. And it signified, and this is key, that she was actually sexually unavailable and it offered her protection from sexual harassment. This is the only thing that we really have evidence of in Greco-Roman culture that protected women down the street from sexual harassment. Um, 
So Christian gatherings is the setting that Paul is writing to. And Paul is writing to Christian gatherings in the city of Corinth. We've talked about what Corinth is like. So when we read about a gathering of Christians, you know, to the church at Corinth, it's easy for us to think about a church like this. But first century churches were in people's homes. Um, much of what we see of, of kind of grassroots Christianity, even today around the world, Christians meet together in each other's homes. That's where churches are. The idea of having a building or a chapel, which is a dedicated space, was actually the only approximation they had to that was a synagogue or a temple coming from, from Jewish culture, or it would have been a pagan temple um, or a Greco-Roman temple coming from Greco-Roman culture. And so when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, we know the name of the woman whose house it was in. Remember the, the couple called Priscilla and Aquila? This is a letter to Priscilla's house. And that is the context of what Paul is writing here. So put yourself in the space. So the time of the week comes where, where the body of Christ are going to gather together and everyone rocks up at Priscilla's house. And because you are indoors, the women need to wear a head covering? They actually don't. They are indoors in a private residence. And all of a sudden, some of these words start to make sense then. Um, have a look here in verse 4 and verse 5, because Paul is describing the things that would be going on in their meeting when they meet together. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. He's talking about when they get together and when they gather when a man stands up to lead others in prayer or in prophecy, it's interesting, we'll get there, with his head covered, dishonors his head. Why would a bloke wear a pallor? Of course he dishonors his head. He's wearing women's clothing. That's what Paul is putting forward here. This is when we get to long hair as well. The word that Paul uses for long hair literally means tresses, very beautified, dressed up, womanish hair. Paul here is talking about a man who is trying to look like a woman. Now that's offensive enough in 2019 in Australia to talk about, but here is Paul writing to the, the Greco-Roman world saying, and you can kind of hear in this maybe some of the things that had been sent back to Paul. Remember, this is a tradition that he gave them. We'll unpack this in a moment. Paul gave the Corinthian church a tradition that was not their own. We're going to have a look at the book of Numbers in a minute about where that comes from. And it seems from the text, it seems, okay, we don't know, but it seems that there had been a pushback saying, why should all of the women have to wear a pallor? We're indoors, we're in someone's house. You know what, if all the women have to wear a pallor, all the men have to wear a pallor. And Paul is saying, no, 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 every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. He is not honoring the image of God that he has been made in. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. And here is the, the way that she does it. It is the same as having her head shaved. It is the same as having her head shaved. If a woman's head was shaved, it was because she was accused and convicted of adultery. Paul is saying if a woman, in the context of, of the gathering of the church, if she does not cover her head, then that's equivalent to actually her behaving as an adulteress. Fascinating. 
For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. She may as, she may as well have already been charged and convicted of adultery. But if it, if it is a disgrace for women to have her hair cut off, well, obviously it is to the Corinthians, or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And, and it pushes into this space. And this here in the green at the bottom is actually surprisingly helpful. Very confusing, but very helpful. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angelos. The word angelos, which we translate in English as angels, literally means messenger. The word literally means messenger. And anytime we see it in scripture, we have a tendency to translate it as, as angelos uh, or angel and go, oh, these are God's messengers. And in this, in this verse, there has been 2,000 years of, of kind of rough disagreement between commentators because they go, it seems like Paul is harping back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 says that the, there were angels who looked at the daughters of men who looked at human women and saw that they were very beautiful and basically wanted to have sexual relationships with them. And Paul is referring here to angels and saying, actually, a, a woman needs to cover her head. He's almost going, it's, it's difficult with, with, to talk about this as a bloke, by the way. It's almost as though Paul is saying, when you're in that room, if everyone puts a pallor on their head, then no woman in that room can be seen as available. No woman in that room can be seen as a lower status than anyone else. If all the women have to cover their head, then all of them get treated as married women. Now, if in that room there is one woman who goes, you know what, I'm not going to cover my head, then it means that that that's a fascinating statement to make. If every other woman in the room goes, I'm not available, we are here in this space and we're here to focus on the Lord and there is just a sea of covered heads and one woman uncovers her head, Paul levels the accusation of that woman being more interested in men than she is in God. The accusation of adultery sits in that space and this phrase, because of the angels, sits in that space, is going, whose attention are you after? Now, this is a hard conversation to have. But when, when someone stands at the front of a room, and this happens for guys, this happens for girls, anyone in the life of a church can look at that person and their mind can wander. And the enemy can come and the enemy can throw tempting thoughts or or if we have been filling our minds with different content, then it's easy for people to sexualize one another. And Paul here is speaking to that dynamic in the gathering of a church way back in the first century. And he's saying, you know what? What if everyone in the room actually wore a pallor? All the women in the room wore a pallor. So that the woman who stands up to pray and to prophesy the same way that a man was praying or prophesying, is clearly not available. Now, this is massively countercultural because the, the practice of worship in Greek culture, when you went to the temple of Aphrodite, 
was often to engage the services of a prostitute as your worshipful act. You would give your money to the temple and you would actually get a sex act from a prostitute in exchange for that. That was how the temples would raise their money. It was called um, hetairite, was the name given to Corinthian temple prostitutes. Um, it was referred to as sacred prostitution. And there's ancient evidence of that going on in Cyprus, Sicily, and Cappadocia. We know that in the city of Corinth, even 400 years before Paul was there, the city was renowned for its sex trade and for being of ill repute as a city. The phrase, behaving like a Corinthian woman, was a denigrating term. And we've talked about the geography, we've talked about the ports, we've talked about trade. Um, and we know that it's likely, even 400 years later when Paul is there, that this legend about what Corinth was famous for would have continued to have something of an ongoing effect on the population. So we don't know when Christians got together whether they had tried to to behave uh, differently or how much of that cultural identity had actually soaked into the life of the, uh, of the church. We know that Corinth worshipped the divine female essence Corinth was known as Aphrodite's city. Aphrodite was known as the guardian of the city, and she was the guardian of the city's women. She was the recognized deity of the region for hundreds of years, and the source of this fountain, uh, the Perrine fountain in Corinth, had come from this this woman. So there was a, a, a really high elevating in Greco-Roman culture that women were far more spiritual than men. The divine female essence was the provider and protector. Aphrodite was not a goddess who was worshipped part-time or on the side of culture in Corinth. The worship of Aphrodite shaped everything that went on in Corinth. The archaeology around the region has turned up a high quality and significant volumes of religious artifacts centered around female fertility, including evidence of a strong cult of women, fragments of priestess items, and indications that women would have women-only feasts where the men would get brought in to serve, um, but the men were not allowed to attend. It was a women's-only feasting event, part of the cult of um of Aphrodite. So we have lots of evidence of adoration of a major female deity by women. Now, we're talking about the house of Priscilla and Aquila, and Christians, people who, who are coming into contact with Jesus, are coming out of the local district of Corinth. They have been soaked in this adoration of women stuff unhealthily. And so it should not surprise us then that Paul here talks about the traditions that he passed on to the Corinthian church, because he says it right there, that he gave them traditions. I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. What traditions would he have passed on? Well, this is where it gets a little bit interesting. Flick back with me to the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And we are going to be in chapter... Um, Numbers chapter 5. Because Paul, while being a Roman citizen, is a Jew. So let's read a part of the Bible that I don't know anyone goes to and studies regularly. Numbers chapter 5, I'm going to read from verse 11. Read with me. Numbers chapter 5, verse 11. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him so that another man has sexual relations with her and this is hidden from her husband and her impurity is undetected since there is no witness against her and she has not been caught in the act and if feelings of jealousy come over her husband and he suspects his wife and she's impure or if he's jealous and suspects her even though she's not impure, then he is to take his wife to the priest. He must also take an offering of a tenth of an ephah of barley flour on her behalf. He must not pour olive oil on it or pour incense on it because it is a grain offering for jealousy, a reminder offering to draw attention to wrongdoing. The priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor, put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. After the priest has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall what? He shall loosen her hair and place in her hands the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. Close your Bible on your finger for a sec or you'll read on because it's fascinating. Jewish culture, as opposed to Roman culture, had very clear symbolism attached to a woman whose hair had been loose. And this is something that turns up in, in the commentaries as well, is this is part of why Jewish culture has a different attitude towards hairstyles than Greco-Roman culture. So Paul the Jew turns up in Corinth and he hands them a tradition. And he he emphasizes actually that, that there is something more important than having your hair out. Maybe there's there's some other symbolism here that should be have have uh have in our mind and in our thinking. Skip over with me to Numbers. While we're in Numbers, let's just have a look at this one quick. Numbers chapter six, verses two to seven. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication, to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. As long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. Now, this passage curiously also comes up when we look at Corinth, because there's a question going, Zachariah and Elizabeth um, are told when, um, when, when John the Baptist is going to be born that he is to abstain from eating any of the, the fruit of the vine, and it echoes the Nazarite vow. Now, we find in Luke's gospel that it's not completely spelled out there that John the Baptist can't get a haircut, but it's heavily insinuated that John the Baptist would have had long hair, which again is interesting when we come over here to say that if a man has long hair, he dishonors his head. But we've just read about a Nazarite vow where a man would have to have long hair. Again, when we understand it in context, we see that it's talking about tresses. It's talking about this beautified tresses of hair that were supposed to look feminine and female. Um. We're going to summarize a couple of these things. Paul has selectively applied pieces of Jewish tradition and particularly um, his theology around creation. 
Sorry, I do need to jump back into these words for a minute. If you have a, a Christian group full of people who are unhealthily adoring and elevating the, the divine female status, then it makes sense that Paul here pushes into that space pretty aggressively and he speaks about the order of creation. And I want you to see this because it looks like Paul pushes really, really firmly against that and then he steps back a little bit. So verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Verse 8, for man did not come from woman. So Paul is speaking against the Greco-Roman um, philosophy and religion. Man did not come from woman, but woman from man. This is Genesis Paul's referring to. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It's for this reason a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angel's. And then Paul kind of steps back a little bit from this. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. So Paul is kind of doing two things here. The first thing is that he's trying to squish back a bit this unhealthy elevation of the divine female essence, which had been going on and seeping from Corinth into that fresh, brand new local Corinthian church. That's the first thing that's going on. But Paul is also saying, you know what, if someone comes out of prostitution and into the Corinthian church, when that person in the context of the service gets up to pray or to prophesy, they are on the same social tier as every other woman in that room. When that woman stands up, she puts a pallor on her head and she is treated as an equal See, Paul is doing both things at the same time. He's trying to, to come to some sort of equilibrium because, and this is something I got to see a little bit of when I, when I visited India, there is clothing that only the single women are allowed to wear and when a woman is married, she goes from wearing a Punjab to wearing a sari. Single women are not allowed to wear a sari. But Paul here is kind of like saying, no, 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 when, whenever any woman gets up to speak in the Corinthian church, she is treated as a matron. She's treated at the same level of respect. She's treated at the same level of dignity. She's treated as belonging to the Lord. She's treated as not available. She's treated as worthy of respect. Paul is actually putting an equalizer into the Corinthian church. So he's doing both things at the same time. He's going, let's, let's push back against this philosophy that you've brought in with you. Let's, you know, let's push that back a bit. But at the same time going, if, if a woman walks through the door and her head was shaved, let's say a woman turns up in the Corinthian church who's been accused of adultery and her head has been shaved and when she's out in public, she has to wear a toga, men's clothing. When she rocks through the door of the Corinthian church, she puts on a pallor. She's treated as a matron. She's treated with dignity. Her past, her sin, her failings, her shortcomings are not held against her. The pallor was also forbidden for poor people to wear. If you were poor, you were not allowed to wear a pallor because it was a high-status garment. So when you walk through the door of the Corinthian church, when you come into Priscilla's house, it does not matter how poor you are, here is your pallor. And you put this on, and you are an equal in that room. Some of us have grown up, um, because this is not a normal part of our culture, Sometimes we have seen in practice that the head covering thing 
can kind of get used in our context as something to force submission on women. Now, that's a statement about about the way that sometimes it's been used. It's also a statement about actually how much freedom and safety and respect women have in our culture. When it was put in by Paul, what it did was it granted safety to everyone who walked through the door of that church. And it meant that they were under authority, that when that woman stood up to speak, that the woman who either comes out of adultery or the person who comes out of prostitution uh, or the person who's never been married or the person who's too poor, when that woman stands up to speak and she has a pallor on her head, she speaks with the same authority as the most dignified woman in that church, as though she is under the authority of the family that she has married into. So it actually gives her authority and it gives her dignity. It's a very different picture to what we have. So what do we do with this? We said before, we can't just cut and paste. When we put ourselves in the shoes of the original hearers, we understand that this would have made sense to them. I know, sorry, the text is a bit small. So first things first, Paul's main thing here is that he is responding to the the context around the Corinthian church. Paul says that he does not give these instructions to all the other churches. Right at the end of what he said before, have a look, this is... I love that this is here, verse 16. If anyone is contentious, if anyone really wants to argue, we have no other practice. We have no other practice. Talking about himself and the apostles, this was this was not something that they had a whole set of, that they just kind of went, oh, yeah, cool, here, here are all the other things you could do. We have no other practice, nor do the churches of God, nor do the churches of God. No other church has this. Paul is saying that this is Corinth specific. These instructions were not given to Ephesus, were not given to Galatia, were not given to Philippi, were not given to Thessalonica. These are instructions for Corinth. So we can't cut and paste, partly because we we don't have the same issues going on that Corinth had going on. That's the first thing. Paul is responding to the default idolatry behaviors which were soaking into the church. He pushes back using specific pieces of Jewish tradition, which he had not given other churches. So he gives them these emphasis out of Genesis um, and talking about loose hair and and all those sorts of things. Uh, We've got those points there that, that it actually... It stated that this woman had belonging. She was under authority and, and therefore carried authority. She was of equal dignity. She was not to be seen as available. She was worthy of respect. The pallor lifted and equalized social status, and it emphasized the authority that that woman, as she led, had, her authority to lead others in prayer and prophesying. So we can't just go, all right, we're... You know, Korean Baptist Church, you've got to turn up and you've got to wear a head covering. If we cut and paste, we end up doing that. And some of us, we've grown up in churches where that was happening. My dad told me stories about the church he grew up in had a mezzanine floor. And when he was a kid, they would crumple up bits of paper and see whose hat they could land it in as the women walked through the door of the church. We have, Christians have wrestled with this stuff. And sometimes we can look back and go, you know what? Maybe we could have done it differently. That's okay. It's okay. Remember the 80s? We all look back on the 80s and think we could have done things differently. Okay? 
I grew up in a, in a church in the 80s I've shared before. Plastic earrings, perms, shoulder pads. Christian expression could have played out very differently. We can't just cut and paste. Any woman who steps up to pray or to prophesy is considered an equal. This is an outcome of Paul addressing idolatry. It is to lift women up in their status that women had to treat one another as equals and also that no man in that room would be in a position to objectify any woman who led the gathering. It meant that no man in that room could point to any woman who led and say, no, 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 you're not good enough. Now, this is going to be important. The context that Paul is speaking into is going to become really important again when we hit chapter 14. Everything connects back into context. So for us to finish this morning, I'm not going to get the musos to play. We've got a song. There'll be some words up on the screen. And I want us to just sit and to think and to reflect on this because some of us have been scarred. Some of us have and I need to I need to apologize for this. Some of us have taken things from scripture and we've sticky taped it. We've just cut and pasted it and sticky taped it to other contexts with, without thinking through what was the Holy Spirit actually doing through Paul? The Spirit of God was rewriting their values. The Spirit of God was revealing the identity and the principles of Jesus Christ in that specific place. What would that look like? What would an equivalent be? In Australia in 2019, how would the Holy Spirit push back against culture and elevate the status of people and equalize things and give authority to speak on his behalf? What would that look like in 2019? We're going to do a song and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to finish. Could I get you to play that, please? Farther along, we'll understand it. Farther along, it'll make sense. I'm conscious for some of us this morning, you may have never heard about a tunica and a stola and a pala before. And maybe it's freeing to hear about that this morning. I trust it is. I'd like to pray, um, I'd like to pray for you this morning. Lord Jesus, I'm aware that, that so many of our different traditions um, and sometimes ones that have become laws or rules um, are things where maybe we, we've never been, been walked through the context of the original hearers. And Lord God, I know that sometimes when we discover actually a greater sense of freedom than what we had before, that what, what that can cause is bitterness or resentment or it can really push a bruise about a sense of hurt, that we got, we got told something that maybe was not as, as accurate as, as it could have been. And Lord, I'm mindful there are, there are going to be people that have that experience about everything I share as well. 
Lord Jesus, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and my sisters here. Would you help us as we discover the freedom that we have in you to not give in to bitterness or resentment or hurt where maybe our experience has been one of feeling confined by people who were very well-meaning, by people who loved you and wanted to serve you. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would continue helping us to understand the Scriptures. You promised that the Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us into all truth. And Lord God, my hope is this morning, as we prayed at the start, that you are our focus, that we see you and your identity being revealed through what Paul put in place in that space. Lord God, reveal yourself in this space. In the same way that you broke into that world, break into this world. In the same way that you lifted people up and you pushed back against false ideas. Lord God, in this space, please lift people up and push back against our false ideas. And Lord Jesus, to you alone, all glory and all honor and all praise, now and forever. Amen.